You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Thanks for coming today to Changing Architecture for a Changing City with Monique Weber. Um, just before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the Yalakut Willem as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalakut Willem are part of the Boonwurrung, one of the five major language groups of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and emerging. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm going to like to begin today just by expressing my support for the acknowledgement of country. And I'd also like to use that just to clarify some of the terms I'm going to be talking about today. So I'm going to be talking about quite a few cities, including Melbourne. And when I'm referring to Melbourne, I am quite consciously using it as a settler term to refer to the city post-1836 settlement and to refer to the cultural imposition over the people of the Kulin Nations. So, what will I be speaking about today? Today, I want us to be thinking about what we're all doing right here, right now. Um, all being gathered here together, discussing the city in this incredible space, we are actually part of a global movement that is about creating impermanent architecture and impermanent structures that can disrupt the narrative of the city and can create a platform for new discussion and for new community. What I really want us to discuss today and to think about, and I'm going to be asking you your opinion as well, is... How is this happening? Why is it important to have spaces like this? How do they function? And how can we ensure that they keep functioning and keep creating a sustainable, responsive and community-based urban environment? So I'd like to begin today with a question more than anything else. What is a city? This might seem like a very basic concept, but it's actually something that's really important to consider. If you think about a city at its most basic definition, it's essentially about a meeting of an urban environment and about a population. And really, it's all about density. It's about a much greater density of buildings, infrastructure, architecture than you would get anywhere else, met by a very great density of people. Now you're probably thinking, yes, I'm well aware of this, I know what a city is. But as I'm going to show, these fundamental concepts are really important and something that we need to question. Because more and more as the 21st century goes forward, as urban in communities and urban living becomes more popular and even more common, we are experiencing a really significant disjunction, a juxtaposition, even a clash between the urban environment and the urban population. What's really important and what's really exciting about a city is that it is mobile and it is diverse. The population comes and goes, things change, there's great variety. And that's what we really love about cities. But fundamentally, at the same time, the architecture doesn't change as a physical concept. Obviously, buildings are going to rise and they're going to fall. Streets will change, but this can never happen at the same rate as the population itself changes and as the population itself moves forward. The result of this is, like I said, a disjunction. You end up with an unresponsive urban environment 
with a community that doesn't have an outlet. Essentially, cities become containers for humanity. They don't become a space that fosters humanity and growth. There's a growing awareness of this, and as I said, I'm going to be really exploring this today. And I want us to think about where does this come from? Why is it happening? And how can we kind of prevent it, I suppose, as we're going forward? So why is this happening? I mean, cities have been around for basically almost as long as architecture has been around. The idea that humans will come together and will create environments that allow them to have greater activity that will allow them to have greater infrastructure. That's fine, that makes sense. However, in the past, it was always a symbiotic relationship. It was user-directed. Humans created the environment that they needed as they needed it, and they allowed it to change at the same time. However, the city that we know it today, so the modern city, a modern city like Melbourne, or I'm going to be talking about Paris um, and London as, and Venice as well, are really remnants of the Industrial Revolution. They're remnants of an 18th century ideal where cities weren't there to foster humanity. They weren't there to create communities. They were there to create environments in which humans could be active, in which humans were there to foster industry, not community. And therefore, cities, the balance sort of shifted. The balance went out at some particular point where the city was no longer directed by human activity. Human activity was directed into the city. And as a result of this, architecture changed as well. With the Industrial Revolution and the Western ideals of progress and civilization and wealth, architecture became even more so than in the past a symbol of permanency, a symbol of these Western achievements, I suppose you could say. And so we shifted from an architecture that reflected what people needed to an architecture that imposed what people should be. So this is really an ideal that we're living in. We've inherited this legacy. We've inherited it physically with our own cities. We've inherited it culturally. We've even inherited it, I suppose, practically. I'm not saying that architecture should be impermanent. It would be lovely, but that's not going to happen. But I want to question today how we can disrupt this narrative because it is fundamentally a narrative that can have some very detrimental um, responses. I've been talking about this kind of in abstract, I suppose. But let's think about this for a society. When you shift to an industrialised city, we'll keep this in Europe for a moment and then I want to bring it over to Australia, then the city, as I said, it becomes a top-down phenomenon. It becomes a city and an environment that isn't about the people, that ignores what the people actually need and their own growth. That in itself is detrimental enough, but at least there is an existing tradition there that people can hold on to. However, cities in what was known you know, pejoratively now as the new world transplanted these ideas. So they not only completely ignored the culture of people who already lived here, I mean, that is obvious, but also forced newcomers to buy into this Western European ideal. And we can see this in something like our own town hall, a fabulous building. I'm not going to say it's not a lovely building. But when it was built in 1870, it imposed a Western aristocratic tradition 
on the people who were here, the pre-existing community and the current community, whether they liked it or not. The town hall ignored the diversity of people in the 1870s and fundamentally, it continues to do so today. Now, what I'm going to be talking about today is not an anti-heritage movement, particularly coming from me having worked in heritage and teaching architectural history as well as contemporary, it's not my thing. But what I really want to suggest instead is that the heritage that we have is fundamentally important, even if we acknowledge that it doesn't always work. We can't know where we're going and we can't actually move forward if we don't know where we have been. To this point, the permanent city that we are still creating, that we are still living in, can instead act as a linchpin, a catalyst, something that we can join into, that we can move forward from. And I want to start playing around with those ideas today. Because fundamentally, this is, this is a difficult issue. If we think about this, this idea of the permanent city, like I said, we're living in this legacy, particularly in the 19th and the 20th century, various people tried to break it. We had new ideas of the city. We had the garden city, the city as a living organism, the city as a network right the way through. But they all fundamentally failed in the face of what appeared to be a very effective system. I mean, as we know, permanent architecture works. However, it is changing. We're at such an exciting time in the development of cities. And what's particularly exciting is it's up to us to change it. So I suppose the next question is, how is this happening? How are we changing this narrative of the city? And how can we ensure it continues? A lot of this is coming from theory to begin with and from those really important questions. Like I said, the industrialised modern city is top down. Now it's flipped. It's gone from bottom up. Instead of being about people telling us what the city is going to be, the people who live in it and use it, like yourselves and myself, and the people who are creating it, are now questioning again, what do we actually want a city to do? What does it do? And how do we understand it? To show this difference, I'd like to present to you two different theories on architecture. The first of them is Nicholas Pevsner, a fabulous architectural historian in 1942, famously said, a bike shed is a building, Lincoln Cathedral is architecture. So let's think about that for a moment. So a bike shed is just a building, whereas Lincoln Cathedral is an architecture. This is a very subjective view of a city and of architecture. It is a very defined view, and it's a very hierarchical view as well. In this, there is a very defined idea of what a building can do and what it should do. And we, as the users, are expected to fall back into it. We don't have any choice. It's a bike shed. That's it. Therefore, it's a building. However, this year, and actually quite recently, um, Carme Pinos at a fabulous lecture. I don't know if anyone went to her lecture at Melbourne Uni. It was fantastic. I think you can get it streamed. Um, she said, kind of flipped Pevsner. And she said, architecture without emotion is just a building. So if we could think about that compared to Pevsner, this idea that architecture without emotion is just a building. This is a very different way of looking at it. This is saying that the whole concept of what architecture is, is in flux. 
And how we define it is very much up to the user and up to the community to decide because it's all about emotion. And again, it's subjective, but it's communally subjective. And there is an open definition. Whatever architecture is, is open for debate, whatever it does. It's not a bike shed. It's not Lincoln Cathedral. It's just architecture and emotion. It is essentially, one thing I want to play around with today, this theory of the impermanent. By the theory of the impermanent, I don't necessarily mean this idea that architecture must move because, as I said, we are still living very much in the legacy of a permanent city. It is instead a concept that even though architecture itself might be permanent, the meanings that we ascribe to it and its functions and its significance for our community can instead change. And it's the people who do that who make it change. Now, this is very much an aim for permanent architecture at the moment. However, as I mentioned, this global movement of pavilions, of design, of temporary structures is something that is actually making this happen, that is inserting this into the narrative of the city and is creating, essentially, changing architecture for a changing city. So for sort of the remainder of my talk today, I want to talk about a few examples where this has been happening and talk about what has been making impermanent architecture sort of um, successful, where it might fall down, and how it is actually having this incredible ripple effect to create a more responsive community, to create a platform for us to take ourselves forward. So, if you'd all like to look at your lovely handouts, if you have one nearby. Um, the first example on page one is an example from 2016. This is the Argentinian artist um, Thomas Saraceno's Aerocene installation. The Aerocene installation is a particularly interesting one. Thomas Saraceno is a fabulous architect and artist and designer. And the Aerocene is the idea of a new sustainable way of creating life. It's basically, if you've ever seen um, Archigram and their theory of the 1980s was of creating bubbles for humans to live in. It was completely utopian. It was just an idea more than anything else. However, Saraceno's idea is to create that in reality. And as you can see, it looks incredible. But what was important about this, beyond its very concept, is that it was inserted into the Grand Palais in Paris. Now, Paris, since the 1800s and Haussmann's renovation, is probably the epitome of the permanent architecture. It is so iconic. It's so typologically important. It's full of symbols. It's full of ideals. The Grand Palais, in particular, has emblazoned across, across the front of it for the glory of French art. However, in 2016, you have Thomas Saraceno's work in there. And his work is about creating a global community that is more concerned with sustainability. So we start to see this narrative disrupting. A permanent building that was all about the glory of French art becomes a platform and a place where you can explore global art and global movement. And importantly for the Saraceno work is an idea that I've been sort of, I suppose, been playing with in my own research, the idea of passage. 
Passage is a term from art history that refers to when an object or a concept slips from one definition to the other. And instead of slipping completely, it just sort of sits in the middle. So the best way to sort of, I suppose, to describe this, if you think about a cubist work, so say a Picasso painting, you know where you'll have an image and you can't, it looks like it's 3D, but then the other side of it might look like it's 2D and you're not really sure. So you think, is that a woman's leg or is it the wall? I can't tell. Or is it just a shape? That sort in art history is called passage. It looks like it might be 3D, it looks like it might be 2D, it's neither. And that's that thing that's really important. It's that idea, I suppose, of the impermanent, of the open meaning. Essentially, whether or not it's 3D or whether it's not it's 2D, the creator, the artist, is letting you decide. And that's what we're getting with something like the Saraceno work. These giant bubbles, essentially, the aerocene bubbles, are design, but then they're also structure. But then put into here, they're also art. It's all about creating a new dialogue. In the same year in Paris, so if you look at your second image on your handout, um, Ai Weiwei did an installation in the Bon Marché in Paris, which is the kind of the original department store. This installation was called Erxi, and it was an installation of Chinese fairy tale characters made in traditional kite shapes. A lot of people actually slammed the exhibition and said a work like Ai Weiwei should not be in a department store. However, when you read the artist's statement, that was the point. It was all about putting a free artwork in a commercial space. And as he argued, for an art, a place like Le Bon Marché, which, like I said, is the fundamental department store, it's probably the most fundamentally French department store. It was immortalised by probably the most French writer you can ever get, Emile Zola, he wrote about it. It's where you go to see the best French art. However, by putting himself in there, Ai Weiwei was putting a Chinese artist into a very French commercial space. And he was all about creating community. And it's what I want us to sort of start thinking about. That sounds lovely. It sounds like a great idea. However, this was the same year in which there was an absolutely tragic um, murder of a Chinese member of the French um, population. And people in Paris who were in the Chinese community started arguing and saying, no, we actually are here. You need to pay attention to us. So we can see that art and these impermanent structures can begin a discourse. They can just remind people of the diversity of the city, of people actually being there. Moving forward, if you want to look at page two, This is um, an image of our own city and also of the town hall. I don't know if anyone saw the golden monkey that was on the town hall in 2016. It was great. Well, if you had have seen, there was a giant golden monkey on the town hall. You have, you have to trust me. I, I tell people this, like, no, there was. I'm like, no, no, there was. I have a photo. It's from the age. You can trust me. But this was um, by Lisa Rowett, who is an Australian artist. And her golden monkey was placed on the town hall part of an international placing of these inflatable golden monkeys on important buildings. The golden monkey was an interesting one because it was all about sustainability. 
I've been talking about social sustainability, how something like the Thomas Saraceno or the Ai Weiwei can create a more socially sustainable environment because it's an environment that actually does respond and does change. The Lisa Rowett Golden Monkey, which was part of White Knight as well, was about environmental sustainability. The monkey that is actually shown is the Chinese sneezing monkey that was discovered to be almost extinct in China. And by inserting it very dramatically, as you can see, it's quite a large monkey, um, by inserting it quite dramatically into the urban environment, Rowett was trying to remind people of the fact that the environment does exist, even though you're in this urban space, it ex extends beyond you. That was the general concept. However, when you bring the golden monkey to Melbourne, to a city that has had a really significant Chinese community since its origins as a colonised city, but where buildings like the town hall, as I said, have ignored everything but a Western European um, aristocratic tradition, its meaning changed. Because it was inserted into this urban environment, because our urban environment started to allow this idea of passage, this idea of responsiveness, it became not only a reminder that the environment exists beyond the urban space, but also a reminder that there are other communities here, that even if you don't acknowledge them, they do actually exist. However, what was quite unfortunate is that a few people didn't get it. We have the same thing with the Ai Weiwei. And a lot of people have said, well, that's the problem. If people don't understand what the architecture or the design is trying to do, is it actually successful? One thing I'd like to suggest to you is that that actually is successful. Even though it may not achieve what the artist wants, which is never a good thing, the fact is it gets passed over to the community. We get to do what we're doing here today. You get to discuss it. It stops being a top-down ideal of a modern city, but instead the city itself becomes a platform for debate. And my final sort of image from design I had to put in because it was such an incredible example was the hands that were in Venice last year for the 2017 Biennale. Excuse me. Have a look at it for a moment. Sorry, everyone, hay fever's getting to me. <laughs> um, the, this is Lorenzo Quinn's support, which did look absolutely phenomenal. So this was part of the Venice Biennale and was specifically one of these interventions into the city, but was specifically an intervention that hypothetically no one knew about. Overnight, you have huge arms raising from the Grand Canal and appearing to hold up a palazzo. And this was all about sustainability. And again, about making it an international question and an international issue. The Venice Biennale is in itself a great platform for debate. But by putting this in and by questioning the fact that, okay, everyone knows that Venice is sinking. What are you actually going to do about it? Rather than coming to Venice going, oh, isn't it sad that Venice is sinking? It was actually by disrupting people's view of the Grand Canal of if you Googled Venice at the time, this is what came up. It made people question things. It made people question the narrative and what they had become accustomed to. And that's what was really important. So 
so far in my talk today, in my few examples I've given you, I've been talking specifically about design and about design that exists in this passage of is it architecture, is it art, is it design? Mainly because there are more examples from this than from anything else. And if you think about it, design is in a very, very fortunate position here. Unlike architecture, it doesn't have to be permanent. It doesn't have to have the physics of structure. It doesn't have to have a very definite function. So as I said, the theory of the impermanent is still very much an aim for architecture, but it's not something that can't happen. So I want to take these ideas that I've been discussing so far in design, the idea of disrupting the narrative, of changing people's perspective, of changing people's assumptions, and of bringing attention to a different community, and I suppose really of breaking down the barriers of what we expect from a city. And look at how architecture can achieve this. It is harder in architecture, but it's not outside of the realm. And for an urban environment, it's maybe the most important thing because it is what, as I said at the beginning, actually creates the urban environment. So how can architecture do this? I mentioned at the beginning that this whole issue is about stripping back our assumptions and our definitions. Stripping back what do we think a city is, what do we think architecture is. And as I said, this is all happening in theory. However, the same thing is happening in architecture in practicality. It's all about going back to the tectonics. Tectonics is a very useful, sort of almost a blanket term, that refers to what is built in the environment. So if you think about a building, everything that you add on to the site is the tectonics. It's the way in which you create a structure. So it's the roof, it's the bits that make up the roof. And also, if you had to strip back a building, so if you imagine when you see a house being built, so you have this, like the slab, for example, that's the stereotomy, that's the basics, but then you start putting up the frame, and you can see how the building is constructed. You can go, okay, there's the joist there, there's the side of the wall, that's the tectonics. The tectonics are the fundamental thing that differentiates a site in the Western idea of architecture from a building, from a structure, from a space that is designated. And it's fundamentally what builds our idea of architecture. And by stripping architecture back to the tectonics, you can strip architecture back to its essential meaning. You can disrupt the idea of the facade, of what a classical order might mean, what a wobbly um, new facade might mean, and go back to what architecture essentially is. So again, I want to sort of put this into some context. So if we look at the first picture on page three, this is kind of a spot the similarities, I suppose. Um, the first one, this is Lucia Costa's um, residential complex in Brazil from the 1940s. If we look at the way it's structured, if you notice the red section next to the tree, the essential tectonics of this wall is all about creating a lattice. It's a very, very popular architectural form of tectonics, particularly in Brazil. So that's the whole idea. It's a lattice of tiles in this example. So that's in Brazil, 1940s. The next image is a close-up of Herzog and de Murren's new Tate Modern in London from a few years ago. 
which again, a completely different architecture. What Nicholas Pevsner, who said that a bike shed and a Lincoln Cathedral are two different things, would argue is a completely different concept because it's not a residential complex like the Costa. It is a museum, completely different. And then if we go forward again, we have Frida Escobedo's Serpentine Pavilion of this year, which Escobedo specifically said she wanted to use a lattice of tiles because it reminded her of the residential architecture of Mexico. So we have that again. And then if we come to our own beautiful M Pavilion for this year, we don't have a lattice, but we do have what's known as a moire effect, where you have the interlacing of different members. Here we have timber, which again creates this beautiful shadowed effect that you can see all over us. And particularly, you don't notice it so much here, but if we look down at the ground, we have the lattice effect in the shadow. So this is almost a tectonics of shadow as well. So here we have four very, very different buildings. We have a residential complex in 1940s Brazil, we have a museum in 21st century London. We have a temporary architecture, again, in 21st century London. And then we have our own temporary architecture here. Different meanings, different architects, completely divided by geography, by gender, by function, by location, even by their space within the ranking of architecture that we inherited from the modern industrialised city. But if we don't look at it in those old terms, if we look at it in the terms of what is architecture, if architecture is structure, they become part of the same narrative. It all becomes a shared narrative. It breaks down those boundaries. And this is where architecture is stepping into this. It can't create you know, blow up golden monkeys that last for two weeks. It can't create, well, it would be lovely, but it can't always create blow up um, architecture, but it can create a different understanding of architecture. Going back to Carme Pinos, the building is still there, but the emotion and the meaning that we give to it changes because our narrative shifts. Because we do have the temporary design, when we come to look at the architecture, the way that we look at that changes as well. And because this is cumulative, it is all about the community and our own understanding again. So this is really where I think it becomes really important that we can start changing it. And as you might have noticed, the two kind of main examples I had there, the two main bridges are pavilions. We have the Serpentine Pavilion in London and we have our own pavilion here. Now pavilions are everywhere at the moment. Everyone is talking about them, everyone is looking at them, there are, my colleagues are writing various books on them. They are so important. But I think it's worthwhile just pausing for a minute and again, going back to that question, what is a pavilion? If what is a city? What is a pavilion? The fun thing about a pavilion is no one actually knows what it is. There's no actual, there's never been a proper definition of a pavilion. No one even knows what the word actually means. There's two potential versions of it. It either comes from a Latin word for a tent, which refers therefore to a military campaign, to something that is set up, or it comes from the French word for a butterfly. That's already kind of difficult, this idea of, well, well what is it? Is it a military thing? Is it just a pop-up? How does that work? And then, as pavilions have gone over the centuries, their meanings have changed constantly. So we have the idea of the military campaign pavilion, that you just pop up, you live on, in it, and you go again. 
When Marie Antoinette had to go from Austria to France, the spot in which she actually crossed the border was demarcated by a pavilion. She had to step into one side of the pavilion on Austrian soil at the very border, be stripped of everything that was Austrian, put on everything that was French, and exit the pavilion as the French queen. So here we have a pavilion being very much an emotional concept, being something quite symbolic. And then you had pavilions coming in and becoming follies in gardens, so kind of like the Janet Lady Clark memorial around the corner. This idea of a structure that doesn't have a, might be permanent in structure, but is not permanent in meaning. And now, of course, we have pavilions like this one, this idea of a contemporary, temporary space. This idea of a pavilion changing and not having a definition has caused myself and my colleagues a lot of heartache. We've spent a lot of ink on over it, trying to work out, well, what is it? How do we define it? I suppose living in the idea of Pevsner that everything must have a definition. It must be a bike shed or Lincoln Cathedral. It must be somewhere in between. But in the spirit of Passage, the contemporary pavilion is emphatically neither of those. It is emphatically something that doesn't matter. It strips it back like architecture is stripped back to tectonics. And fundamentally, pavilions normally are, as we can see here, just pure structure. It strips back that meaning. So the idea is that a pavilion is a transformative space. And a pavilion is important because it doesn't have a meaning. And if we go back to our original definition of a city as a meeting of the environment and the population, the pavilion provides one half of it. It's up to the community to decide what it does and what it means. So to kind of, I suppose, bring this back to Melbourne and to bring this back to our own community, I think it's worth looking at how this has functioned in our own city over the last few years. So I have on your handouts, I have some pictures of M pavilions since they began. So to begin with, we have the 2014 Sean Godzel M pavilion which was important because it was open to the public. It was the first one where we had this great platform. And it was really the launching point for it. And especially with the Godzel um, design, he refused to define what it actually meant. People saying, you know, is it meant to be a shed? Is it meant to be a butterfly? But embracing that idea of a pavilion, it didn't have a definition. And when you look back at the program that we had for M Pavilion in that year, it was very much the same. People were coming in and for our first opportunity, there was no defined meaning. It became a platform for changing, for engaging with the environment. The next year, we had the beautiful Amanda Levine on page five. Um, her canopy of petals that was rising up from the gardens. It was all about reminding us, I suppose, in our culture of looking to typological architecture for meaning, by having architecture that looks like the environment in the environment, just reminded us of what this space is actually for. And this is when the patterns started to emerge of the city of Melbourne actually responding not only to the idea of having a pavilion, but to the pavilion itself. So in the same year as Amanda Levine gave us a canopy of petals to remind us of the environment, this was the year where Melbourne communally, we really stepped up our sustainability um, efforts. People started signing up saying, no, we're going to be sustainable, we're going to get rid of plastic bags. 
So we can see we start having a bit of a symbiosis between ourselves and our environment. The next year was the incredible um, Bijoy Jan Studio Mumbai, which seemed to rise from the gardens and really, in terms of tectonics, really reminded us of fundamental, fundamental materials. In the same year that this one came, there was two exhibitions at the same time. There was one at the NGV over the road about the importance of bamboo and how it's been used in architecture and design. And also RMIT hosted a fabulous retrospective of Studio Mumbai's work. Now this doesn't just happen. It wasn't just all of a sudden everyone had it. But this is where I want us to come back to this idea of the theory of the impermanent, but also a sense of sustainable impermanence. If you have a physical city that in itself changes slowly, but not only do, does the environment change with these contemporary interventions, but you know it's going to change. Every year you know M Pavilion is going to come back. Every year you know that something like White Knight is going to bring new design. Then you can actually start creating the changing dialogue within the institutions to change with it. So you can start having an exhibition at the NGV that refers to what the M Pavilion is going to be. Not only does that create new patterns and new narratives across the city, but it also extends the meaning of this impermanence because it's carried by the community, because we're the ones who participate in it. Going back to the idea of tectonics, um, last year's design, which is on your last page, and if you want to see any of the images or read about them, all the links are at the bottom. Um, which was Rem Koolhaas um, and David Giannotten of OMA's architecture. Going back to this idea of tectonics actually made that that's okay, um, significant and important to the building itself because it swung open to the community. So the community could actually decide how they wanted the building to function. Did we want it to be inclusive or exclusive? And as I mentioned, Kame Pinos's design this year, we've already seen a great shift in the programming because her work is all about responsiveness. So I'm here talking about responsiveness. There have been various other people as well. If you look at the program, it's been changing a lot. And it's also brought up really important questions because of the presence of a new narrative of a female architect, again, so our second female architect for M Pavilion, about what is happening in gender in architecture today as well. So we can see how these buildings and these meanings start to accumulate. Which brings me back to my, I suppose, my first question of, well, how do we keep this going? This is all very well and good. This is lovely. But how do we keep this going? How do we keep our history but start disrupting it and making it more responsive, I suppose? I think all of us being here today is a great part of it because this is part of opening up that dialogue. But also it's all about having a more thoughtful, engaged community and a more holistic one as well. It demands that the architects are responding to context. It demands that we as the community are being engaged in what's happening in our own city, not only in participating when something happens that we like, but also in questioning what the city is doing, in questioning what's going to happen. It takes a lot more work than just your average building. It takes a lot more work than just walking past permanent architecture. But the payoffs are so great because what we end up with is not a didactic, informed, sort of imposing permanent architecture that tells us what we should be, 
that tells us what the city is. What we end up with is a responsive platform for the community to engage and for us to decide how our own lives are going to be lived in the city. Fundamentally, looking back over all of these, I've given you a lot of examples and a lot of different ideas. Fundamentally, it's all about engagement and responsiveness and sharing, which no matter what sort of outcome it has in the city, can only be a good thing. Thank you. I don't know if there's any questions, otherwise I will go. <laughs> okay, well, thank you everyone for coming. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're not keeping your flyers, please recycle them. And I hope you enjoy the lovely rest of the day. Thanks everyone. You are listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. Visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.